You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to SecondCity.com. The Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. Man, this was a really great conversation. I am talking to Ben Ramalingam, who is a senior leader, innovator, and research uh, and researcher specializing in international crisis management and development. Um, he's worked with and advised the United Nations, the World Bank, and many other organizations. He talks about a new gig he's starting, and he's got a new book. It's called Upshift, Turning Pressure into Performance and Crisis into creativity. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting DSAMed. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, Kelly. Uh, in the introduction to your new book, you talk about leaving your home in Jaffna, Sri Lanka as a child for safety. Um, and that feels like an important story as it relates to the ideas, the theories, the concepts you talk about in the book. So can we start with that? Sure. Tell us about what that ha- what happened that, that when you left your home. So... Uh, <laughs> I grew up in Sri Lanka during the, um, my, my experience of Sri Lanka before the civil war was, you know, obviously there were challenges and problems and so on. I was the product of a cross caste marriage. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like we had an easy time. My mum was high caste. My dad was low caste. Um, my mum was ostracized. And so it wasn't like I had a view of the world growing up that was like everything is hunky dory and rosy, but. I lived in a beautiful island and a beautiful mm. place. And uh, one of the strongest feelings I had growing up was, you know, th- this is like paradise on earth and nothing can ever take it away from me. And when the war started, it was to my eight-year-old, nine-year-old mind, the, the, you know, the, the feeling was very much the, the, the 
whole thing just exploded in fire and flames and and everything suddenly became very scary. Um, we There were lots of things, you know, there are many things which I recount in the book. Um, the experience of the adults and my experience of observing those things and having my own little world for coping with that, my own way of dealing with things. And I think I had, my brother was just a couple of years older um, when the war broke out. And I think this actually provides quite an interesting counterfactual. Yeah. Is he that much more aware, that, that much more kind of conscious, that much more able to uh, kind of bridge into the adult world and get more scared and get more worried. And I think I, think I, I had quite an interesting experience of being a, a war baby. And yeah. I, I kind of, as I recount in the book, I, I kind of had this almost like a protective bubble around me of, of playing games, of finding ways of making things okay, of seeing what was going on for the grown-ups, but kind of going, well, hang on, it doesn't have to be that way. And I'm not saying that that attitude alone was what, you know, enabled me to adapt through that process, but it certainly was a contributing factor to, you know, my brother now, Right, or you know, he's now what would be classified as a vulnerable adult. He's never really recovered from the trauma of that period. But the fact that I played games and found ways of you know adapting and having some agency in that process, um, I don't think is some something that I chose, but it's definitely something that benefited me through that process and has benefited me ever since. You know, adapting to being in a foreign country, adapting you know all of the all of the different things that refugees have to do. In order to adjust, I think I think the, the start of it was right there during the war. Um, uh, I don't know if you know the, and I've talked about this on the podcast before about the origin story of the Second City and these improv games that make it up. But they were developed by a social worker on the south side of Chicago in the 1920s and 30s to help immigrant children better assimilate assimilate into this country. And I feel like your experience, especially contrasting with your brother, and I, I think we think of that level of youth as naivete but i think sir ken robinson among others might say something different in terms of no it's a level of openness to experience it's a level of of just free creativity and that ability to play and there's a wonderful film by um john borman called hope and glory which follows this young child in a in a war situation and 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 he is because of his age he 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 is playful and and enters and is able sort of to gather that inner resilience which sadly and frankly as we get older uh, work education kind of takes it out of us mm, definitely definitely and I, and I, but i think i you know the, and i think there's uh, i'm at pains to point out in the book i was in i was i grew up in extreme situations uh, and i, I was yeah. fortunate enough to have a a way of adapting or a way of uh, which may be a combination of my innate qualities things which you know the space that you have sometimes if you're if you this it's always a little bit easier for the second child to come along and be the disruptor right the first yeah, child has right. to follow the rules listen mm-hmm. to the parents and all the rest of it. so that even even my position with the family would have had a positive uh, uh, an enabling factor so i i guess i'm i'm at pains to say isn't i'm not saying that there's anything special about what i did but the the, the ability to learn from that the ability to observe right. it and then try and turn it into a life practice that's something which I, I feel like it is the critical thing. Um, and, and that's what Upshift is all about, really. It mm-hmm. starts off kind of exploring that, that scene that I describe on the boat in the book, which, as I, as I describe it, is one of the most visceral memories of my childhood, one of the most clear things. And when I wrote it out, um, 
I remember showing my mum and saying, you know, how how well have I captured this? Does it capture your memory of this experience? Uh, of of you know, and it, and it's one of those things that has become such a myth in my family that it's it's the story, story the time that I he walked up to the the soldiers and. And, and if anything, what she actually told me to do was take out detail because she still has that slight immigrant concern of, you know, the, the escapee, the refugee and all the rest of it. And she was like, don't say that. Don't put that uh, in. Don't, okay. Uh, but, but, but your memory was true to her memory, essentially? Yeah, yeah, yeah wow. absolutely. But, but what she asked me to do is to, you know, for, for, for the concerns that many refugees still have, you know, safety, security on the rest of it should like you shouldn't put that bit in you shouldn't put that bit in you shouldn't put that bit in uh, more more from the point of view of you know filtering and saying i want us to be safe when you tell the story that's right i was really glad i was really glad you started with that story and in general I, I just did a keynote in washington dc last week and i was talking about storytelling and and i start my keynotes that i deliver almost always with a story about my son and and talk a bit about where I come from. And indeed, because I want to sort of hook people on like, I'm a human, I have ideas that I'm going to convey to you, but they come through a very particular kind of human lens that when you understand that, there's there's maybe just more space for for what I'll call sort of curious play uh, mm. with, with the audience to maybe see like, oh, that, that I can see why this was, you know, the way you took this particular piece of information. And my friend Sunil Gupta did the same thing. He has a wonderful book called Backable, and he, he tells the story about his mom growing up in the border town of Pakistan and India, very poor, and, and, and her ability to become the first female engineer at Ford in 1966. And that's wow. an amazing sort of uh, story that then he relates back to like, and then this is how I took that resilience to sort of bring in into my more modern world of, of, of tech. And I'll also yes. say, the, 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 go ahead. So when you say you tell stories about your son, what, what, yeah. what, what is it about your son that you, you tell? Uh, okay, so so the story I, I begin all, almost all my talks with is, it's, it's true. So it was around um, 15 years ago, and I'm in my office at Second City, like I'm sitting right now, and it's a Friday, uh, it's the summer, and uh, end of the day, and I'm picking up my stuff. And my son is just finishing his first week of improv classes. First time he's ever taken it. We started doing these summer camps. And when you're 10, you can take them. He's now 25. Um, and we get in the car and we're leaving um, uh, the second city. And, and what, what you need to know about Nick at this time is like, he is uh, chubby. Um, uh, he is, um, he gets bullied at school. Um, but he's been loving like this, this, this week of improv classes. And we're leaving Second City, and he just says to me, Dad, do you know what I love about improv? And I go, no, buddy, what do you love about improv? He goes, in improv, if you're nice and funny, you're popular. Oh. Right? Right. And I'm just sort of like, oh, that's more important than anything. And it's not, again, popularity I don't necessarily care about, but the point he was getting to was this idea of, kindness and curiosity and collaboration and communicating all those things that that are probably the reason that second city which used to just do improv to put on stage now has a giant business taking improvisation into caregivers hands and lawyers hands and cor corporate training and, and all those sorts of things but but it for for me where it started was like anyone for a dad the most important thing is that my kid found solace in my life's work and it was like okay i i i have just bought myself the next 20 years hopefully more because of the meaning and the purpose yeah. behind that 
That's that's amazing. And and as the uh, dad of a twelve-year-old son, who isn't bullied at school, but I think he has his. You know, I'm observing him becoming a teenager, mm-hmm. and and there are lots of issues around. You know, what kind of young man he's going to be, and sure. the mo- the models that are given in society to young men in particular, the the, the kind of the forces of even both extreme toxic mas- masculinity yeah. and mild toxic masculinity. So, so they're kind of all around, really. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you show and how do you show by example that kindness is a form of strength? And this is a this is a this is a very real daily upshift for me trying to model that for way. sure. Um, and, and and because you know the talk about the unknowns in terms of what. I think, you know, we're both of a certain age where you kind of knew what you might do and you could kind of like, I've been at Second City. My, my dad worked at WGN Radio for 33 years. I've worked at Second City for 34 years. I mean, there's like, and yeah. that, that is just anathema to people now. They, they, they don't do that. And that's fine. But then, but then where are they going to find, um, uh, certain kinds of role models and relationships and, 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 and stuff that sort of cascades over time. And so that they can sort of develop all, all of themselves as a full, human being um and i'll say too i imagine like my son grew up in a certain amount of privilege i I imagine your son is doing that as well my dad didn't he ran away from home when he was 16 and so you also wonder like oh i wonder what you thought about that and then you know but but i agree i i think what you were saying initially which is this modeling you know can you model the kinds of behaviors because ultimately I don't, you, the influence is so beyond the house. Yeah. Who are their friends? Who are they going to school with? What are they listening to? What are they seeing? And all of that sort of floods in. And, and you just, at a certain point, you just hope that you've surrounded them with enough books and enough um, ideas and enough uh, modeling of behavior that they're going to uh, f- find what what is their resilient self, right? There was a moment equivalent to your son's experience when it was actually during the writing of Upshift when Toby was maybe now 12, I think at the time was 11. And he was with his cousins in the park. I wasn't actually there. He was there with his mum, my ex, and we're still, still on very good terms. Mm-hmm. And, and there were these other kids that turned up and were basically being tricky, um, yeah. either bullying or, or in some way. And he found a way of navigating through it with his cousin, protecting his cousin, looking after himself, and then came back to uh, his mum, Naomi. And said, Mum, I just upshifted. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> and she messaged me and I was like, she was like, you're gonna be so proud. He just said he upshifted. Yeah. Uh, until they turn teenagers and they turn it against you, which yes. is like, this is my dad was like, Oh yeah, like I'll say no to something. You know, when he was a teenager, I'd be like, Oh, this is the yes and guy saying no to me. And I'm like, oh, all right, <laughs> fair <laughs> Um one of the stories that you tell early in the book is a favorite of mine. I'm a very big jazz fan. Yeah. A perpetual um, album that I listen to, frankly, probably every month is the Cone Concert by Keith Jarrett, which at, at its time, I think it probably still is the most successful solo piano jazz album of all time. Yes. And I think Tim Harford might have been the first person where i heard this this story from it's still not widely known so i'm very happy that you included it but can you talk about keith jarrett recording this concert and, and then and it relates so beautifully i think to to the rest of the book which is why it's one of the origin stories yeah so and i and, I, and I, obviously I'm, i know tim he's a friend and i was aware of his um use of it um to talk about um 
the messiness and the role that messiness had. And I, it was such a powerful example. And obviously, I'd actually heard about it in a BBC radio uh, production um, a few years before before her. But the thing that I especially and and so the story itself is quite an incredible one. That, yeah, you know, Keith Jarrett going across Europe. He is he lost his record contract. He's finding a new way of de- developing a record contract, finding his new sound, and he's doing a series of improvised concerts across Europe. Um, and he turns up in Cologne, he turns in Cologne, he's performing live at the Cologne Opera House and he almost doesn't go on. Um, he's exhausted, his back's hurting, he's driven overnight. And when he turns up there, he finds out that the piano that he's supposed to be playing is not the one that he ordered. And he is famously specific about the, his instruments. You know, he, he, I won't go as far as saying he's a diva, but that's certainly the impression you, you mm-hmm. get from some of the. Uh, uh, is a perfectionist yeah um and he um so he, the piano doesn't work it's um it's broke the keys don't work the pedals don't work um he refuses to play and he's eventually persuaded to play by the young um concert organizer um and the piece that and and, and that you know there are lots of different examples of lots of people that have explored this over the years um this particular story because the outcome the result was so magnificent i guess yeah. and um but the thing that i really wanted to dig into is how did it feel for keith in doing that you know he he's one of these people that people you know that he, he's he's such an icon he's such a superstar people know that he has this um particular approach to playing, to improvisation, to turning up and feeling the music. Yeah, yeah. Um, how did it feel to him? And that, that's the thing that I was especially interested in, uh, digging into what those around him were saying, what he said himself, how he developed his practice. Um, and and, and it, for me, it was the thing that made me realise I was going to include it and there was, a, there was a kind of value added to me bringing it into upshift was when I... We'll learn about his, what I call click moment, which is the equivalent of my own click moment on the barge as a child when I decide to walk up to the soldiers. Yep. And it's when he's basically looking out and seeing that everyone is expecting a great performance. People, he looks out and has this sense that people want him to succeed. And up until that point, he was kind of not really sure whether he's going to do it. And suddenly he was like, Everyone wants me to succeed, therefore I can. And then he kind of does this fist-raised moment where he puts his hand up in the air and says, power, and then goes on stage and starts to play. And, and, and I think it's, a, it's that shift that, that in mentality between the struggle, feeling like everything's too much, everything's going to overwhelm me, you can't do it, you can't cope, and then you realise there there's a way forward. And it doesn't matter what, for me, it was, the, it was the, on the barge, the point at which I walked up to the soldiers was when I realised that their cigarettes were shaking and they were scared too. And I thought, well, yeah. what's, if they're scared and we're scared, we don't have to be all scared. The key, the point was when he realised that everyone outside waiting for him wanted a great performance, wanted to see a great performance, and he was capable of giving it. There's something about the click moment for both of us that, that was kind of and I don't talk about this enough in the book, but there was an empathy there with yeah, the other yeah. party, the empathy. And I think that's something really important 
to improv and to Second City. You know, you can't, you know, as your son put it, it, you just have to be nice and good, and that makes you popular. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And and at the heart of that is the idea that you are able to empathise. Right. And I think the thing that people, like, it's not, it doesn't intuitively make sense to them that when the stakes are the highest is there's a letting go that there has to be because when the state, and and I wrote down a couple of things because I was thinking about this, which is Keith Jarrett was facing some serious barriers. Uh, First of all, his own success. Right. So, so like, Oh my God, if this isn't like, I'm going to go out and the piano is going to not work and it's going to be terrible. The fear of looking foolish, the fear of failing, all, all those sort of things. And then the phrase that you find inside uh, of what happened was this idea of buoyant solidarity, which I love, which is, and in, in our work, we, we talk about the fact that all of us are better than one of us. And when we yeah. can sort of enter a space like that, amazing things happen. Yeah. It is very hard for most regular human beings uh, to tap into that when we're facing these sort of inc- incredible situations and these are the ones that you talk about in in your work um all over the world um attempting to you know working with people who are trying to feed people or they're they're dealing in war torn areas or, or all that but then as we were talking before we even started uh the podcast which is the re the the rich research that exists around improvisation is all about aircraft carriers about crisis about famine about about places where truly Someone has to improvise because the plan has gone so incredibly awry. And what Upshift does, this book does so beautifully, is it is like, let's look at this from a bunch of different angles. Let's let's sort of look at what all the elements are. And, and one of the things that you capture, and this is something we've talked a lot about on the podcast, and it's very important to me personally, which is we're, we're all of our smart people are so thinking about the brain and what the brain needs to do and thinking that we forget that the body is saying a lot more. The body is telling us uh, a lot more than we think it is. Um, you you write in the book, quote, we typically think of the hardware of our brains influencing the software of our minds. The reality, however, is that our stress appraisals can actually change our bodily functions. Our cognition can change our chemistry rather than the other way around. So talk about that because this is crucial. And 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 very not a thing of the West. I think Absolutely. far more a thing of the East. Absolutely, and and you know, there's some there's some really interesting examples. Uh, before before I go on to that, one of the things I wanted it, yeah. when in these crises, because obviously my job is crisis response. Yes, and I work on crisis response. I, I'm currently um, working across a whole range of different disasters and and trying to bring innovation into different disaster settings. Yeah. My the job I'm going on to next month is going to be taking on the mantle of director of strategy at the British Red Cross. So it's the equivalent, yeah. the UK equivalent, the American Red Cross, where hopefully bringing some of these ideas to bear on the world's biggest humanitarian network. Now the challenge, the challenge is, you know, it is absolutely the case that crisis drives positive changes, but sure. it doesn't. It doesn't always happen. So in one sense, the book is an investigation into this idea of necessity being the mother of invention. But the reality is in most crisis settings, necessity drives convention rather than invention. So part of what I want to do in Upshift is actually say, well, we've got these bright spots that stand out whenever extreme necessities do lead to invention. But why why isn't it happening more regularly? 
And my experience is that actually most of the time in crises, the responses are dominated by what things which people have done before, which they feel makes them safe in the face of uncertainty or makes them feel better in the face of disaster. And so I had to go in and actually explore these situations and dig into the bright spots where novelty happened, even though they might have happened, let's say, only one in 20 20 crises, to actually unpack the, the kind of underlying principles, the underlying ideas. And, and that's, that's what started Upshift. It was looking at those positive things in disaster zones, going around disaster zones and saying, when have you done something which surprised you in a positive way in the face of crises? And that led to the first ever study on humanitarian innovation, which I published about 15 years ago. And that was kind of the beginnings of Upshift. But it was, a, it was only after doing that work for about five or six years that I started looking at these ideas in other areas and identified that there were patterns there. Yeah. That were common, that you know, not just in disaster, were there was there in everything from commuting to space travel and including in you know um, musical arts and um, uh, performing arts and so on. So, so I think that's one of the things that um, you know, uh, uh, and, and when and in, in particular the, the 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 starting point of all of that stuff is the ability to to actually engage the software of our minds in the face of the hardware of our brains, and and, and that, we come back to your question. And I think one of the things that, uh, and this has been, uh, you know, everyone can identify a point where you're able to reframe a problem. You know, I, I, you talk about giving keynotes. The first time I actually ever talked about upshift in public, I was giving a talk at the Royal Society of Medicine, 500 people, doctors, medics in front of me, another 3,000 watching online. And I felt incredibly nervous going on stage. And I thought, well, I'm just going to tell a story of how nervous I felt, how nervous I feel. And what it is that enables me to overcome those nerves. So I stepped on stage and I said, you know, I'm here. I'm feeling terrified of all you fine people. You know, the good thing is if I faint, at least I know someone in the audience will be able to help me. Um, (laughs) But but the point at which I can actually manage my adrenaline, overcome that rush, say that you're not a threat. This is something that I'm going to feel stimulated by. And you're going to enjoy what I have to say. And I'm going to enjoy it. That that moment is is when I'm able to use the software of my mind to overcome the panic, tell my body this is what actually is actually happening, um, and and to and to reframe the situation. Um, and the, the 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 studies have shown time and there's been so many different studies, and they talk about the use of kind of simple mantras. I feel excited when you step on stage. Yes, that's a good one. It, it's a very simple neuroscientific kind of process. Scientists put volunteers into a whole range of different stressful situations, seeing karaoke in front of strangers, doing mass tests under pressure. People, the participants wear heart monitors, and you can see their heart monitor um, during the tests. And then they basically get divide them into groups. One group says, I feel anxious. One group says to themselves, I feel calm. The other group says, I feel excited. And the excited group invariably feels more confident and performs better than the other two. Yeah. And literally because that software of telling yourself what you're doing, although it basically saying I feel calm has zero effect on calmness. It contradicts the physiology of what you're doing. But actually it's a plausible lie to tell yourself you feel excited because the symptoms of excitement and the symptoms of panic are high. So what you're actually doing is creating a new mental context for yourself which turns anxiety into excitement and you feel like you're taking on a challenge rather than facing a threat. And that then sets up a series of changes to the chemistry of the brain. It turns your 
brain, it basically increases dopamine activity. It focuses your attention. It sharpens you mentally and it gives you a boost to your performance. So all of those things kind of happen when you're doing that reframing process. Now, that's an instantaneous one based on you know, stepping onto a stage. But actually, if you think about a disaster response, there are times where I've worked in disasters, but every morning you kind of look at yourself in the mirror and you say, right, I'm now going to have to get up and do something which I've never, ever thought about doing before. I'm going to probably have to do it all day until I get to bed again. And I'm going to have to keep doing it. And you kind of have to tell you, you have to build that kind of mental preparation. Has to, And even though it's a sustained process, and I wouldn't recommend it for anyone to go through sustained stress no. over long periods of time, but we can all think of times where we just had to keep doing it, had to keep performing. And, and it's exactly that same kind of framing process. Now, the longer you do that for, the, the more you can do to widen your window of tolerance. But there is a payback. There is a yeah. payback when you do it for long periods of time and, you know, chronic stress and, and, and all the rest of it. And you do need to look after yourself. You do need to think about self-care regimes. It's not a, it's a reframing and using the software in that way. It doesn't have a, uh, it, 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 it's not a, you know, energy can only be turned from one form into another, right? And right. so you, you do have to, uh, you do have to have downtime. You have to relax. You have to let yourself um, recover from it. I'll give quite a few examples of people that experienced upshifting for long periods of time and then, and then had to kind of go out, become a hermit for a while. Everyone from Florence Nightingale to Steve Collins, who is the, one of the great innovators of malnutrition in the last 50 years. Um, they basically did their upshifting and then had to recover in, in some That's cases right. for, for years. So, There's so many thoughts I've got on this. Um, uh, so Alison Woodbrooks and Francesca Gina, who are two of the Harvard uh, psychologists who were involved in that study, um, that we work with a, a lot have, have shared that. And I think that for, for one of the reasons I think the language of the arts is so important here is recognizing that the arts developed as a way for us to look at what it means to be human in a variety of situations. And this idea of performance, which is what we all do the minute we wake up, we are performing in a, in a certain way. And, and so you would never, if you if you're looking at yourself as a peak performer in any field, those people are uh, stretching, they they are practicing, they do all these different things before they enter their field, and and of course they do that when they're soccer players and baseball players and cellists and and pianists and actors, but why wouldn't they be if they are? business people, if they are people working in these, these, you know, especially for people who are working in these really difficult environments, like what is, what is the workout? And, and the thing that I love about improvisation to stay on this idea of embodiment is it's embodied play. So, so when you are doing a, a basic improv exercise and let's say it's focused on listening and you are practicing your ability to listen Anyone who doesn't think like just the idea of if I could listen 10% more effectively, how would that change the situation I'm in? Oh, immeasurably, (laughs) I think. Uh, And and again, as a daily practice, even more so. And so I really feel like one of the things we're missing is is this element of, of practice. Uh, that that rarely enters the conversation. And, and as you say, it's like, 
you can only do this stuff for so so long in these in these environments where yes, you, sleep becomes important and rest becomes important and walking away, but also like when we're in that day to day, what are we doing for ourselves just to prepare for that day? Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, one of the things that uh, one of the thoughts that that triggers in my mind is about organizations and organizational structures. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the one of the things that arts organizations have is a, is a relatively flat structure, yeah. relatively open, and a lot of space to do things which are based on you know kind of intensive intensive periods of collaboration, and then and then kind of moving away, doing your own thing, then coming back together, kind of intensive periods of collaboration. That's not the structure of the 19th century organization that was developed and that's now become the model for most of the organizations in the world, which right. shape businesses, which shape my sector. You know, the, the, the model, the model for most organizations is Henry Ford's model T, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can have any color car you want as long as it's black. And, and so therefore it's a, it's a system that prevent, not just prevents, but inhibits improvisation, inhibits change. And it means people end up doing this despite the system rather than because of it. And it doesn't matter if it's big business. It doesn't matter if it's the UN or NGOs or global or healthcare in the, you know, a hospital. People who take an improvisational approach, people who are upshifted, they often do so at personal cost, right. at professional cost. They do so. They kind of find the space for it. They protect it themselves. Um, and they do it despite the system, yeah, not because of it. And I think that's a real challenge. And therefore, you have to both try and channel your energy into being improvisational whilst also clearing and your team as well, because obviously you're managing people and supporting others and creating that with, whilst also creating a safe space in an environment that isn't safe. And I think those dual things means it's part of the reason why I think many creative people end up getting pushed out of organizations. Right. They become advisors and scholars and, and, and regardless of the sector. In my sector, one of the challenges is if you're good at working in Afghanistan, your next role is, you know, you'll never get Belize or Costa Rica. <laughs> you'll go from Afghanistan, then you go to Central African Republic, then you'll go to South Sudan. And, you know, being good in crisis settings doesn't, you, know, you never get given that kind of leeway of having the nice posting because you there's somewhere else where, you know, everything's gone to pot and you need to turn up and try and help fix things there. So I think that's one of the challenges as well is once you get a reputation for being good under crisis, crisis is all you get. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There was a quote from an upcoming podcast taping that we're doing uh, where someone, a a friend of the author uh, said that, and she's in law, that getting made partner is like winning a pie contest and the reward is more pie. (laughs) It was like, oh, that sounds terrible. Right. But, but seems to be true. The, The other thing that I thought of when you were saying these things, which is, I certainly have a great deal of hope because I feel like the conversation is changing. I feel like we know there's, there's academic research there. The, the leading teachers at Harvard, Ron Heifetz and in, 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 at the Kennedy school talk, talk about improvisation in, in, in their books. And they talk about the agility in their books and the need to, 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 um, uh, Wendy Smith talks about both and thinking, navigating complexity. So it ex- it's existing now in, in that world. And I know that takes time. To then enter the workforce, but certainly the amount of Fortune 500 companies that are hiring us to say our people don't know how to talk to each other, 
our people don't know how to sort of let go of their sort of perspective, perspective um, prescriptive methodologies, and we want them to be thinking more widely and and, and creatively and innovatively. Um, and and I think in your book adds 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 to that conversation. So, are and you strike me as like you have to be an optimist to be doing the work you're doing. Well, I think there are a lot of realists. I think I would I would you know I I, I would say I'm a patient realist. Okay. I, I believe in people. I believe mm-hmm. in the capacity of people. But, you know, there, there are lots of situations where if you don't allow yourself to see the full horror and the, and the challenges, like what's going on in Turkey and Syria at the moment, there's, there's a, you know, the, the, we, are, we are facing a world of increasing crises. We can be optimistic about human capability, but we also have to be aware of the, the size of the challenge that we face. And I think, I, I, you know, just coming back to the point that you were making earlier, I also think that we can't be complacent. I think there are some organizations that are doing this well, Fortune 500 organizations. But in the wake of COVID, I think a lot of people have come back online and they yeah. haven't really paid enough attention to the no. mental health side of things. They've kind of assumed that things are all going to go on okay. And and these are, many wow. of these organizations are just fe- facing a kind of a frozen middle management layer, frozen senior management, and they're they're not quite aware, cognizant of how they need to move forward. And I think trying to reconnect to each other, using the kinds of tools that you you're, you have in abundance, thinking about the qualities that we have, how we engage with it, aspects like empathy. You were, yeah, I, I listened to your podcast from yesterday about post-traumatic growth. Yeah. I think we actually need to think about institutional post-traumatic growth. At the moment. That's right. Um, and we need to think about how we can do it. And this is not something we've really embraced. I don't think. We've kind of talked about it at an individual level, the kind that Scott and, and his co-author were talking about yesterday. But how do, we, how, do we, how do we deal with this at an institutional level? How do we grieve institutions for what we, yeah. our organisations could have been, what they were pre-pandemic, what they are now, and then move on together? Well, I think that that speaks directly to the distrust uh, that people have of of these institutions and organizations. If they can find that way of like, no, there's like we can grieve as an institution. We we can cry as an institution. We can also heal as yeah. as an institution. We can maybe get back at that because we're nowhere without this stuff. It's like we, if it's just sort of at the individual level and that's it. Like we. It's just read Lord of the Flies and we can be done with it. It's it's just not going to happen. So, you know, how, how do how do we sort of restore that sort of face and that that opportunity? And, I, you know, I work with a bunch of young people. Um, they, yes, they, 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 they've got um, there's distrust and there's other things, but there's also such a uh, incredible, I don't know, ethic and uh, wanting to do the good work and wanting to connect with people and being willing to do all sorts of things and be so open. Um, and so that as hard as it can be in terms of navigating those conversations between the generations, it's like, it's also rife with opportunity. Definitely. definitely. Uh, I could not agree more. And there, there are lots of examples of, of that, that which I, I'm seeing in my kind of personal life. I, might, my, I, I talked about KB earlier and he's been attending a drama group and really enjoying it's not an improvisational based drum group, but it's one based here in Brighton called Winmore Young Arts. Yep. And the ability he has to connect with his almost peers and those a little bit older than him and people like, you know, facilit- theatre facilitators that can actually uh, 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 bring that creative impulse out. And, 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 and what that then means, what that means for his confidence, his 
sense of agency in the world. His, you know, so I think it's it's so important for young people. But there was a phrase you described yesterday in, in Scotland. I'm not wanting to turn it into uh, discussion, but it was one that really. Scott will be very happy about that. <laughs> well, no, but there was a phrase which I think we need to. You know, you you t- you talked about it in the context of. I think it was. Um, we're never going to have the kind of past that we want. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think if we can find a way of bringing that sentence to institutions and organisations, you know, the last three years are what they were. We're never going to be able to rewrite. They were what we were. There's been a lot of pain for all of us. We need to collectively reflect, grieve, have a kind of truth and reconciliation and move mm-hmm. on. And, and that, that, I think, is going to be a really important part of the kind of collective post-traumatic growth process, uh, the kind of upshifting that I think many organisations need to go through now. Well, I think that the, the core idea inside our work is that, you know, we talk about being fiercely present in the moment because we can, we can ruminate in the past and we can try to live in an imaginary future that we don't necessarily understand. Um, but if we are thoroughly in, in the present, and again, not being informed by these things and not being able to dream and all those things are right. But if we are here in the moment, there's so much rich things that uh, stuff that we can sort of uh, gather from each other uh, to, to then sort of build what's next. Um uh, but if we're not starting here, you can't, you know, th- there's no other step. All right. I could talk to you forever. And, and, and before I ask you for a yes and story, which I will in a moment, I just want to talk a bit about the research you, um, uh, referenced around, uh, uh, symphony conductors. <laughs> so, uh, and this was not, I was not familiar with, with the research and I, and I thought it was fascinating. And I think it really speaks to a, a, a better modern mode for what it means to be a leader. In, in inside any in, inside anything, whether it's a leader of a family, a, a leader of an organization, that sort of thing. So, can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah, um, absolutely. And you know, there's been there's been quite a bit of management. Henry Mintzberg, the kind of famous management scholar, did his first study on um, uh, conductors back in the 1990s, and he was he was always kind of aware of this idea of the orchestra conductor to describe the act of management. And he decided he would actually try and spend time observing how conductors work and what they did um and he looked at and what he did was he almost kind of created a odd um natural experiment he looked at different kinds of non-musical leaders he worked looked at the nhs he went to tanzania and looked at um red cross managers working in refugee camps some of them were very kind of extreme situations and having done all that he then went and observed conductors and what conductors did um, and he went, he went and studied Bramwell Tovey, who's the conductor of the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra at the time, over a number of days. And what he actually found was um, they were like many organisations of professionals. He talked about consulting firms or in, the, in that it, it was, they were structured around the work of highly trained individuals. And the really key thing that Bramwell Tovey did was covert leadership. It was the idea, it was worlds apart from the idea of kind of Henry Ford, Model T, right. sitting in the middle of a spiderweb, kind of making it all happen and, and like change, get, adjusting controls and so on. Um, and the, the reality is conductors are people who lead without seeming to. They're the silent musician. They're neither completely authoritarian nor completely powerless. Um, uh, but actually the, 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 the critical thing that other leaders could learn from, from orchestra leaders wasn't actually about control and showmanship and ego, which obviously many orchestra leaders have in buckets. 
Mm-hmm. It's actually about the the idea of leading quietly and unobtrusively, not to and not to extract obse- uh, uh, obedience, but to inspire performance. Mm. And and that that was the kind of critical thing, and that, that was the form of upshifting which I observed with my colleague Randolph Kent, who's some you know a very dear friend of mine, and well, whose story I tell at numerous points, and who for fifteen years I worked with him, and people just he was one of these UN leaders, crisis leaders. He worked in Rwanda, he worked in Somalia, he worked in Kosovo, he worked in the worst place in the world. And when I first met him. He kind of plucked me from obscurity and said, come and work with me and be my deputy director on this program. Mm-hmm. He changed the way that crisis response works. And I really wouldn't be here talking to you if it wasn't for him in many right. ways. Um, but, and everyone I met talked to me about Randolph and they had experience of Randolph in the field. And they were like, oh, Randolph was just brilliant. Absolutely amazing. He was the best best leader I've ever seen in crisis response. And as people would talk to me 15 years after they worked together, and he said, they'd say, I still have a post-it note saying, what would Randolph do? Hmm. And I worked, worked with him for two months, 15 years later, still held him up as like a paragon of leadership. But when I was actually talking to him about what he did, he would always just find ways of deflecting it and right. not telling me what was going on. And eventually, I, you know, in the writing of shit, I sat him down and said, what is it you actually did? And it turned out he was like a conduct. He was an unobtrusive, he inspired performance, he, he orchestrated the whole. He was the silent musician. And part of the reason he didn't want to tell his story is because that wasn't what his form of leadership was about. His form of leadership wow. was about listening to and amplifying other people's stories. Now, I don't know if there's an equivalent of that in, I mean, I've heard about jazz jazz conductors, you know, improvisational conductors that have, have a way of kind of playing. Yeah, like a Gil Evans, like certain yeah, producers. Right, right. Who are, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so I think there, there's a, there's a role. And I guess in, in many contexts in the, in the improvisational space, so it would be the way you operate when you're setting up the workshop, you set up the terms and the rules of engagement. Yeah, and then you the director, the teacher. Yeah. Right, yeah. Exactly. And, and then you might intervene at a certain point to create connections or to nudge, but you're not, you're not, yeah. playing, you're, you're the silent musician watching from the yeah. sidelines, observing it. Um, that lesson, that lesson, which was one I learned sort of midway through my career, I wish I'd learned it earlier, was that our job, any of us leaders here, was to make the ensemble on stage the thing they do as beautiful as it could be, but it's the thing they do. And if you come in being like, I want you to do this thing, that's different. And that is not taking advantage of, who you have and like, what's the team I have in front of me and what amazing things can, can they do? And so that also requires very good casting, very good hiring, that sort of thing. But I think in the book, what, what you expose is this, the, the, it was never true. It was never true in the past that there was some, per, a great, it's what's called the great man theory, I think in, in, in Western academic circles, that there was just someone handing this stuff down. It's like Steve Jobs didn't invent the iPod. Yeah. He didn't. Now, was he a genius? Yes. And did he do genius things? Yes. Was he a good leader? Jury's out. Yeah. No, I'm sure in some ways great and other ways yeah. not so, so much. And that's fine. I mean, that like, the, you know, per- perfect. If perfection is what you want, you're not going to find it. Absolutely. You mentioned Rahm Emanuel when you talked about yeah. earlier on um, in, our, in our preacher and one of his most famous quotes. And I don't know if it was actually his originally, but he he kind of famously used to say, we should never let a good crisis go to waste um, yep. back in the Clinton era. And, and I think the real adage should be, in a crisis, don't let 
anyone go to waste. Yeah. Despite in crisis situation, particular, despite everything we hear at the moment of the contrary, diversity is not the problem. Diversity is the solution. And it's both all the different kinds of diversity that we're talking about, you know, that, that are important, you know, um, uh, LGBTQ, gender, yeah. race, but also cognitive diversity. We think about things in different ways. We approach things in different ways. And there's something about, and I guess coming back full circle to this point about empathy. If we, if you and I were to sit down together, we would find out that our ability to harness creativity under pressure is not a fixed capability. It's no. not, it's not, we, we have different starting points and we have different processes, different ways in which we're going. But if we're able to empathize and be vulnerable with each other around that, then we can actually learn what each other's starting points are, the processes that we're on. And we can both learn from the way we are both going. But we can also feel mutually co-empowered to do it better. That's right. And, that, and that's kind of at the core of what I, why I wrote Upshift, really. I wanted to tell these stories because I wanted everyone else to have the feeling that I got when I listened to people like Randolph, when I did it myself, when I talked to, you know, it's, it's an incredibly empowering feeling to, to know that in the face of extreme vulnerability, extreme pressure, people can say, yes, and. Well, that's just it. You're like leading into the yes and story, which you just did. But I, and I, and that is fine unless you have anything to add on top of that, because that element of synchrony is exactly what you're talking about. Well, listen. So my yes and story actually comes down to the point, and it's very. Specific, I hope you don't mind it being too focused on the book itself. No, that's great. Go for it. Um, but it was I, um, I came up with the idea of the book. I worked on it for a number of years. We pitched it to a publisher, um, Flatiron, who took it on. Um, we got the news that it, they'd accepted it the day before the first lockdowns were announced in the UK. So we're talking Mar- March 2020. Yep. Um, and when I when I got the news of the book, I was like, great. And I'd, I'd been working on COVID already, you know, the, the development implications of COVID sure. and looking at the cost implications and so on. And at that point, it was from, from about January 2020. I was all, already aware that this was had the potential to go big. Um, uh, not quite how big, but big. Um, and then got the book contract. And the initial instinct was, okay, I'm going to get take six months out to write the book and then I'll go back to the day job. And then obviously COVID happened. So I ended up working around the clock on the COVID response. Yeah. Um, and the yes and that happened was, well, can I actually carry on thinking about this book, which is about cre- creativity and crises, uh, about performance under pressure during the process of responding to COVID, listening to how, what people are doing and how they're doing it, can 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 we do this as a yes and can I kind of try and write the book and work on the crisis response at the same time? Um, it was a challenge. I, I think for the first seven months or so, I did nothing but COVID, and the idea of sitting down and writing at the end of that was you know, um, very far from my mind. But then actually, the whole idea of it being a marathon, not a sprint. Um, particular aspects of the politics of, of the COVID response in different contexts were becoming quite disheartening. Yeah. Um, the technical side was fine, but actually the politics of COVID was much more challenging. It was, it was less challenging in the U- UK. And I think um, with, the, with the election in the US and various things, things kind of became a lot more positive. That's right. Speaking. Um, 
And then I was working in parallel on both the, both the response aspects of the response and, and writing the book. And that yes and of, of basically writing a book which was so explicitly about what was going on for the world, it, it was such a strong feeling. And I had a sense of purpose whilst writing this mm. book. It kind of flew out. I've written a book before and it was an act of, it was an act of, engineering of construction i really had to hammer all the bits together and it was like welding things together i enjoyed it but it was a tough it was a tough act upshift flew out and i think it was the yes and the part of me that kind of went i can write this whilst doing this i can write it and that that kind of sense of empathy with what's going on and and a driving sense of purpose to me it felt like it was the most important thing i'd ever done apart from be kobe's dad and that feeling just just the book, I, I won't say it was, you know, completely easy, but as I was writing it, I just was in full flow for a period of, you know, nine to 12 months of just writing whilst working on the COVID response. Um, yeah, and that yeah. was the result of a yes and. And I think yeah. you, you can, as I read the when the first copy turned up and I started reading it, you know, I, there, there, I can actually see there's a, unlike the process of construction and, um, uh, and engineering that my first book was, this almost feels like it was a just-in-time book. It was it almost feels like it all just came together in the pinch point of of my of my keyboard. Almost felt like it. I kind of improvised it. You know, I wrote yeah. it on the fly, and there, there was something effortless about it. Yeah, and I it, don't know it, if that it, comes it, over and how it, it has. It, it reads like that. I mean, you know, I read a lot, and this is one of those books that just kept sort of turning and twisting but always had the sort of center in the spine uh of, of message and it's it's lovely and there's great stories and there's studies and it's just it's all the sort of richness kind of put together um and i highly recommend it to everyone the book is called upshift turning pressure into performance and crisis into creativity uh ben ramalingam thank you so much for coming on the pod oh it's been such a pleasure and i, I really hope we can continue this conversation kelly a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Oh, oh, oh.